you would, grab your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 25. We're going to be walking through some early verses of Genesis 25 here in just a second. Glad you're here tonight. I know it's been another full weekend, second straight holiday weekend that we've had. So uh, we return to all the normalcy tomorrow. Sorry about that for you kids and teachers and all of those. Um, but I'm glad we can worship together before we, before we start the week. And tonight we are completing a series we started way back in September on Sunday nights. Talking about the life of Abraham. You notice that it's uh, fall 2022 Sunday nights is when we were going to do this series. So it is no longer fall and now it's not even 2022 anymore. So I've gotten way behind and I apologize for that. Um, but I hope it's been a good study. I've enjoyed walking through the life of Abraham and just seeing the ups and downs and things we can learn. And we like to end, or I like to end these series with a, a legacy lesson. Uh, what, do we, what do we take away? What do we pull together? How does it end and, and what can we learn from seeing the whole picture together? And next fall, we'll pick somebody else and we'll, we'll do the whole thing again. Um, but I hope, hope tonight's lesson will be a good ending. If you were with us two weeks ago, we didn't have a Sunday night assembly last week uh, with the holiday. But if you are with us two weeks ago, we saw Abram's life at the very end was starting to change. His wife of probably over 100 years, Sarah, passed away. Uh, Abram was 137 when she passed away. They'd been through a lot together. They, I mean, she had, to, she had to go along when God said, leave your homeland. It was probably hers too. And so they, they left their homeland to go to this place. They didn't even know where they were going. Um, they, they struggled with the promise of, are we going to have a child or not? And so they'd wrestled with so many things, spiritually and in life together. And her passing, no doubt, was a really tough time for Abraham, you would imagine. One thing we noticed about that is we saw Abraham's commitment to God's promise of the promised land because he didn't take her back home to bury her, if you remember. He, he bought a cave from Ephron the Hittite and bought the whole field so he could bury her in the cave. We'll see that come up again in Genesis 25 tonight and even beyond that. We also saw last week that Isaac is getting older and after Sarah's passing, Isaac got 40 years old, about 40 years old, and Abraham made his servant promise to go back and get a wife for Isaac from his homeland. I don't know why he chose his homeland over the land of Canaan. Maybe there was, he trusted the morals back home that he did the people in Canaan. I don't know. But he said, go back. And remember his, his servant said, okay, what if the woman won't come back here? Can I take Isaac back there? And Abraham, again, his commitment to the promised land. No, don't take him back there. This is our home now. This is where my wife is buried. This is where I want my son to live and grow up. This is the land God promised us. And so we saw as, as life is starting to wind down a little bit, we, at least we thought, and we'll see here tonight, uh, some exciting things happen here at the end. Um, yeah, Abraham is still committed to the promises of God. So we will walk through these early verses of chapter 25 tonight, and we'll talk about some things that the New Testament says in reflecting back on Abraham's life. So that'll be our lesson tonight. So here in Genesis chapter 25, the first thing we find, Abraham remarries at some point after Sarah's passing. Abraham marries Keturah, and we see him blessing their children in verses 1 through 6. Um, Abraham would live 37, 38 more years after Sarah passed. He would live to 175. If you haven't studied that in the Bible, you see these long lifespans early in 
Early in Genesis and after the flood, you see those lifespans slowly start to come down. And so Abraham's at that time where they're coming down, but 175 is still a lot to us, and that's the age he lived till. Uh, but 37, 38 years after she passed, he would still live, and during that time, he remarried. So verse 1, now Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. And notice they have, they have six kids. I'll do my best to pronounce their names. She bore to him Zimran and Jokshan and Medan and Midian and Ishbak and Shua. If you're looking for baby names for 2023, I invite you to Genesis 25 and verse 2. To, uh, everybody likes trendy names these days. Maybe those are some of them. Um, I'll let you decide that. Anyway, Jokshan, it tells about some of his kids and Dita and some of his kids. I'm not going to try to pronounce uh, verse 3. Uh, or some of verse 4, but, but you notice uh, there's a, he has six sons during these last 37 years of his life as he remarries Sarah. Um, there's, there's this whole family that's growing up. On top of that, uh, before I read verses 5 and 6, Isaac will have his kids. Now Isaac is going to wait 20 years. He and Rebecca waited 20 years before they had kids. Um, not, not completely by choice, if you know their life story. But they have Jacob and Esau. They have twins. I had not done the math before, but Abraham was 160 years old when Jacob and Esau were born. So he, had, he got to see them grow up to age 15, until they're, they're teenagers. And no doubt that brought some, some uh, new experiences into Abraham's life um, as a grandfather with Jacob and Esau and all that would happen to them. But verse 5, it says, Now Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, um, which would be Hagar, which would be Keturah, I guess considered a concubine. One source said that if there was a remarriage after a death in the Middle East in this time, it wasn't quite considered the same rights as the first wife. And so maybe that's true because she is called here a concubine. Abraham gives gifts to their children, to these six sons, and they get gifts and they're sent away to their own, their own places, their own lands. Um, he sends them away from his son Isaac eastward to the land of the east. Um, but uh, let me just say something more about verse 6 real quick. So it seems like Isaac is still held up as the as the child of promise, just as God said. He was the one who would have the lion's share of the inheritance. And then you have verses 7 through 11. Abraham dies, and Abraham is buried. Again, verse 7 says that he would live to 175. What would he be doing those last 175 years? I wanted to read this to you. Again, he's got six sons growing up. He's got Jacob and Esau growing up. Uh, this is what Swindoll's book, I told you I've been using... As one of my sources, uh, Charles Swindoll's book on Abraham's life. And, and here's his uh, imagine um, idea of some of the things Abraham was probably doing with all these sons, even at age 160, 170. More likely, it says, Abraham kept young, busy playing with toddlers, wrestling with school-age boys, roaming the hills with teenagers. How did Abraham stay young as a man in his 150s? May I offer some suggestions from my imagination? By teaching six boys to drive a cart without running into a ditch. By playing war and hunting wild game. By breaking up fights and teaching them about the opposite sex. He certainly must have taught them how to herd cattle, shear wool, bargain with city dwellers, cut a straight deal, manage employees, and defend their reputations. And most important of all, he likely taught them how to build a proper altar and worship the one and only God. If you remember, uh, that last part especially, Abraham's family didn't know about the one true God as he was growing up. 
Uh, Joshua 24, as he's rehearsing the story of Abraham, said his family served idols, then they came here. So Abraham is now, he is changing the family tree in a spiritual sense. He's teaching his sons, he's teaching his grandsons and their families about the one true God. Um, And so here, verse 8, Abraham breathed his last and died, what a great description, in a ripe old age, an old man and satisfied with life. And he was gathered to his people. I've always loved that phrase, the end of verse 8. Gathered to his people. He didn't just die. Uh, There's life after this one. And when you're with God, you're gathered to your people when you pass on. So Abraham had that great description. Then his sons, notice it, Isaac and Ishmael. Ishmael and Isaac had had their their problems through the years. But they both come together for the, the, the burial of Abraham. They come together and they bury him in the cave of Machpelah, the one he bought in our last study, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, facing Mamre, the field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. If you keep reading through Genesis, you find out near the end that there were some other really important family members who would be buried here as well. In Genesis 49, this is Isaac. Isaac has been brought to Egypt by his son Joseph. He's about to die, and here's what he tells his family in Genesis 49, starting verse 29. He charged them and said to them, I'm about to be gathered to my people. There's that description again. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite. In the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, he gives them the whole description, which Abraham bought from Ephron. There they buried Abraham and his wife Sarah. There they buried Isaac and his wife Rebekah. And he says, there I buried Leah, his, one of his wives. The field and the cave that is in it purchased from the sons of Heth. And if you remember when he dies, Joseph and the Egyptians would carry him back and he would be buried there as well. This is the Abraham Mosque. Hope you can see this picture okay. In Hebron, if you and I ever get to visit Hebron in the Holy Land, we can go, uh, I think you can go see the Abraham Mosque. This, like a lot of places in the Holy Land, has a complicated history. But somewhere a few years before Jesus' time, Herod the Great, as he's building all sorts of stuff, he built a structure over the cave of Machpelah. This was a special place to the Jews. And so he built this structure over it. At some point, there was a church built over it. In the Crusades, uh, the Muslims built a mosque over it. And in the Crusades, it went back and forth like a lot of things. It's got a a sad history, like a lot of things in that area, of fighting back and forth and and, uh, people being killed because of it. And there's different things through history that talk about people going into the cave of Machpelah. if you, all, if, if you and I get together one day, they're not going to let us just walk into the cave of Machpelah. Uh, but let me show you, if we could walk in, I think we could at least see this. And it's a little darker than I thought it would be. But let me use my little laser pointer I never get to use. Down here is a, is a covering over the floor. And the way I, it's been explained to me is that you can lift up, we can't, but people can lift up that covering and climb down and you will find yourself in a room And in the center of that room is a special tile. And you lift that tile, it takes you down into cave one, if you can squeeze into it. If you can squeeze through cave one into cave two, into cave three is where several people through history have said, including one, and and I'm going back to like the 1100s here, 
um, as one as one account says, talks about going into that third cave and seeing six tombs set across from each other in that third room. And different people down through history uh, have shared similar things, although it seems like at some point um, in all the fighting that took place, things were moved around. It seems to be harder to get into those caves now, and people are wondering, it, it, are they still there? Or did someone move those those tombs at some point with all the fighting back and forth. Uh, maybe you and I can sneak in one day and figure it out. But anyway, this is the place where Abraham is buried. There's a mosque built over it now, but we know the place. That's interesting to me, uh, that we know the place where this happened. And verse 11 ends this section. It came about after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac. We've called the whole series the blessings of Abraham. And that word blessing has popped up over and over and God would bless Isaac just as he blessed Abraham and would bless all the, the children of Abraham, as we'll see here in just a minute. So that's how Abraham's life ends, um, with kids all over the place, <laughs> kids and grandkids growing up, 175, buried in the, the cave that he had bought for his wife in the Promised Land. That leaves an unforgettable legacy. So many people, multiple religions even, trace themselves back to Abraham, one of the lives that has truly changed the world. It was not a perfect legacy, and so let's, let's remind ourselves of that. Abraham is not Jesus. Uh, he's not God, but he allows God to work in his life. And, and we've seen imperfections. We've seen him lie when he gets afraid. We've seen him take a second wife like the other nations around to try to have kids through her when, when God's promise wasn't coming quick enough. So we've seen some lapses in judgment. We've seen some lapses in faith along the way. But the victories he had, the spiritual victories he had, left a great legacy. Victories like when God showed up and said, I want you to follow me, that Abraham went. And again, as I've tried to emphasize, don't, you know, some, sometimes I've thought to myself, well, if God spoke to me, I, I think I would do it. Not everybody does. God talks to Jonah. Jonah runs the opposite way. God talks to Moses. Moses got 1,200 excuses why he shouldn't be the one going back to Egypt. Uh, when God spoke to Abraham, Abraham went. Uh, when God told Abraham to sacrifice his son, which made no sense, he, he was going to do it. God stopped him if you, if you weren't here for that study in Genesis 22. But you see this faithfulness in Abraham in spite of the imperfections. And I hope you and I will be able to say the same thing one day, that we weren't perfect. We had struggles along the way, and, and there's, there's people who no doubt are disappointed in us for one thing or another, but we hopefully had some spiritual victories along the way too, that we were really trying to follow God and we allowed God to work through us. Let me read you what Acts 7 says about that legacy. Um, this is Stephen. Right before Stephen gets stoned, he's rehearsing some of the history of God's people. And look at what he says about Abraham. He says, Hear me, brethren and fathers, the God of glory, that's a nice description, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. Verse 4, Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had him moved to this country in which you are now living. So Stephen, here in Jerusalem, saying, he had him moved to this area. This is now our, our land, Abraham's family's land. Verse 5. But he gave him no inheritance in it. Abraham didn't own anything until he bought that field to bury Sarah. Not even a foot of ground. 
And yet, even when he had no child, he promised, God promised, that he would give it to him as a possession to his descendants after him. So Abraham goes with God, even though he has no inheritance, he trusts him. Verse 6, God spoke to this effect, that his descendants would be aliens in a foreign land, that they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. Stop there a second. Remember in Genesis 15, that's where that comes from. One of the times when Abraham was starting to say, God, you're... You blessed me, but we don't have a kid. You promised that all nations would be blessed through us. And, and God says, let me tell you what's going to happen. And part of the things he told him was, your descendants will be in a land 400 years, and then I will lead them out. And so about the time Moses is coming, they're, they're looking. Hey, it's about the time for God to get us out of Egyptian bondage. Verse 7 says, whatever nation to which they will be in bondage, I myself will judge, said God. And after that, they will come out and serve me in this place. He also gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac, circumcised him the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob, Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And then that family, through Jacob and the twelve patriarchs, as he calls them here, the twelve sons of Jacob, uh, would come the Israelites, later known as the Jews. Abraham began that legacy of faith. He is called the father of the faithful in the New Testament. The father not only of the Jews physically, but the father of all people who have faith. And that's part of what Elijah read just a minute ago. Let me point out a couple of verses that, that say that. Romans chapter 4. Paul, you notice there I've underlined it. He is the father of all who believe. Everyone who believes, the, they're, they're in Abraham's family. Because he started this legacy of faith. When God says, go, you go. Even if you don't understand, you'll, you'll see that God knows what he's talking about. Verse 12 says, not only for the, the circumcised Israelites, um, again, all the, the sons of Israel were supposed to be circumcised, not only for them, but the uncircumcised as well, because everyone who follows the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, they're sons of Abraham too. So not just physical Jews, but everybody who has faith says the child of Abraham. And our kids still sing in vacation Bible school. Father Abraham had many sons, and that's what they're talking I hope that's what they're talking about. <laughs> they're doing all sorts of crazy things. But I hope what the, the learning thing is there is that, is that Abraham is the father of the faithful. And then one more verse. This is what Elijah read a minute ago. Galatians chapter 3. And I want you to notice the promise we'll see in verse 9. It's going to lead us to our last thought for the night. Galatians 3, starting verse 6, says, So Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Again, Paul's trying to tell probably his Jewish Christians, it's not just Jews who are sons of Abraham. If you're faithful, you're part of God's family. You're, you're the son of Abraham. The Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. Part of the gospel, he says is going to be that all nations would come to God through Jesus Christ. Notice the promise in verse 9. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. What a great description. Abraham, the believer. So let's spend our last few minutes then in this series talking about how we can have what verse 9 is describing here, the faith of Abraham to be blessed with Abraham, the believer. How can we show the same type of faith that he showed? And my three points here come from uh, Everett Ferguson. He, there's a book in my office he wrote. It's called The Church of Christ. What he did is he, 
He called it an ecclesiology, which means a, a scholarly study of the church. And so he put together a lot of things about faith and about um, things that we in churches of Christ try to, try to hold up, things like following the Bible and having elders lead each church and, and the importance of baptism in Scripture, things like that. Um, and he, he gets into faith and he talks about Abraham. He talks about how the faith of Abraham has three different elements to it. And that's where we'll end our series tonight. So first of all, part of faith is belief. And what he means and what I mean by that is, with my head, I believe when God says something is real, I believe it's real. Hebrews 11 verse 1 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We're convicted even if we haven't seen some things. God has told us they're there. We, we believe that. For example, verse 3 there in Hebrews says, By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. So even though you and I were not there at creation, we believe God created it. God, God tells us about that. Even though you and I cannot see the future, we believe Jesus is coming again. There's going to be a final judgment. There's going to be a heaven. There's going to be a hell. Even though you and I were not present at the life of Christ, we believe Jesus came here and that He walked this earth and that He performed miracles, that He died on the cross, that He rose from the dead. There's things we have not seen. And yet part of faith says, even if I haven't seen it, when God says it is real, God, I believe you. I believe you. And we don't do that blindly. It's not just, well, okay, I'll just believe it for no God has shown Himself to be trustworthy. And we've seen enough things that are true that we can stick with the things we haven't seen just yet. And so part of faith is even these things we haven't seen yet, we believe them. One more thought on this. Remember when Jesus was talking to Thomas? Thomas said, I'm not going to believe that, that he's risen from the dead unless I can see, unless I can see the, the holes in his body. And Jesus shows up, appears to Thomas after he rose from the dead, said, Thomas, I want you to, I want you to feel. I want you to feel the holes in my hands, the hole in my side. Thomas says, I believe. Jesus says, blessed are you for believing, but blessed are all those who believe when they haven't seen. Thomas, you saw and you believed. That's great. But there's going to be a lot of people who need to have the type of faith that says, even if I haven't seen it, I believe it. That's part of faith. And I hope we have that part of faith, believing. Second part of faith is trust. This, this might be the hardest one. Um, it's, it's one thing to say, I believe that there's a heaven. I believe that there's a God. I believe that there's Jesus. I believe there was a cross and a resurrection. To trust is with the heart to say, I'm going to lean into the promises of God and I'm going to trust that He will come through in what He says He's going to do. And that's Abraham, isn't it? And, and Hebrews 11, here in the Hall of Faith, that's what he says, verse 8. By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. And Christians have always loved that phrase. He didn't know where he's going. God said, go. He said, go. Okay, I'll go. I'll go. He didn't know. There's no plan. We would have asked for a map. We would have asked for an itinerary. God, God if, you'll, if you'll explain it to me, I'll do it. If you'll, if you'll show me points one through a hundred, I'll do it. That wasn't a choice. That's what faith is. Faith trust that God will be with us at point one and with us at point five and at point 50 and at point 100. That, that even though I don't know where the path leads, God will be on the path. And that's what faith says. Now I'm going to have trust. Verse 9 goes on to say, By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise. So God says this is his land. 
He doesn't own a foot of it, as Stephen said. Doesn't own a foot of it until he buys the, the burial place. And so he's dwelling in tents, but he's doing it trusting God's going to keep his promises. And however many of them I get to see, Abraham said, I'm just going to fulfill what God wants me to do, and God will fulfill his promises. One more thing on trust here in Hebrews 11 is the, the, the offering up of Isaac, or at least being willing to. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. The son he had waited for for 25 years. The son who, who he had wondered about and questioned about. God says, all right, sacrifice him um, on Mount Moriah. And, and he's the one, verse 18 says, that God had made all the promises about. And we pointed out, verse 19... Abraham considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. And I love the faith in that verse every time I read it. That Abraham would say, I don't understand this, but God can do whatever he wants. So I'm going to do it and trust that God's going to tie all the details together. And I hope you and I will have that type of trust. This is, I'm going to keep doing what God says to do. And even if I don't understand where I'm at or where I'm going right this second, I trust that God's going to pull all that together. So part of faith is belief. Part of faith is trust. A third part of faith is obedience. This is where you find out if you really believe, if you really trust. It's one thing to say it in your head. It's another thing to do it. Abraham does it. Hebrews 11, again, verse 8, said... By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed. He obeyed. By going. It, Abraham didn't just say, God, I believe you. I believe that that's our promised land and that you're going to take care of things, but I'm just going to stay right here. He didn't do that. He, he went. He obeyed. That's not, that's not faith. Uh, too often in our, especially in the last several hundred years, our religious world has tried to separate faith from obedience as if they're two different things. In the Bible, they are not two different things. In the Bible, faith and obedience go together. When you believe, you do what God says to do. And you see that in Abraham and James chapter 2. Again, looking back at his legacy, James writes, Are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, hope he's not talking to us, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. Your translation may say faith was completed. Faith without works is incomplete. But when you add action, when you add obedience, that's when faith it, it, it becomes complete. Or, as verse 26 says, it becomes alive. Faith before it obeys is dead. No matter, no matter what we think in our head, it, it becomes alive when we act. If faith is not acted, it is still a dead faith. It may have potential, but it's still a dead faith. When it acts, when we obey, that's when our faith comes alive. Abraham shows us that's part of faith. Paul described it this way in Romans 1 verse 5. He said, the obedience of faith. Let's never forget, a big part of faith is the obedience part. Not just thinking, not, just, not even just trusting, acting is a big part of it as well. So from Abraham, I think we're reminded faith includes belief, it includes trust, it includes obedience. God is still looking for faith. God is still, is still hoping that the men and women He has created all over the world 
will have relationship with Him through the faith that, that Abraham showed, that we can all be blessed with Abraham the believer, that that promise that would go to all nations would be experienced by us as well. And the call of God comes to all people. How's that happen? Paul said it this way in 2 Thessalonians 2. He says, He has called you through our gospel. We're all called by God through, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, the message of the apostles that, that we have written and that we have spoken and that we have shared with us today. We're all called through it. And then we had decisions to make, just like Abraham and Sarah had when they were aged 75 and 65. Are we going to act on it or not? Because a lot of people, a lot of people make excuses. A lot of people hear the call of God in Scripture and they say, no, I'm, I, I'm too busy, or, or that's not for me, or that's for someone else, or, or I've made too many mistakes, or I'd rather do... There's, there's plenty of excuses. Some people blame other people. Well, I, I can't because that person did this or that person... We're really good at justifying ourselves. Instead of justifying ourselves, I hope we'll be like Abraham. I hope when God says go, we'll go, even if we don't understand that we'll have the belief, the trust, and the obedience to act on what God says. So the question that we need to ask for our own legacy, our own life legacy is, how will I respond to the Word of God? Because at some point, that's all that's going to matter. All that's going to matter, our time will will come and go on this earth, and the only thing that's going to matter is, what did I do with the Word of God? My prayer is that God will be able to say, you and I lived out the faith of Abraham. Tonight, if you're not a Christian, we'd love to see you make that step. Take that step of being baptized into Jesus Christ, just like they did in the Bible. Repent and be baptized, Acts 2.38 says. If you have questions about that, let us know. But maybe tonight you're ready to to put on Christ, begin the best time of your life of following Jesus Christ. If we can pray for you about anything, we'd love to do that. If you need to respond publicly, you're invited to come to the front now while we stand and while we sing. (laughs) 